This is Slippery People, the best Talking Heads podcast, not about Talking Heads. So when we last left Busta, he had just ended his time with the band White Lightning, a group that only made a singular self-titled album. The band had some great help with industry connections through people like Bud Prager, Gary Kerfurst, and Chris Blackwell, all of whom Busta had met through his time working with the British band Sharks. The band recorded the album in Busta's hometown of Memphis, but for a myriad of reasons, White Lightning broke up. So Busta was looking for work, and luckily, he still had some friends. So I came back to Montreal, and then Leslie West called and said, "Hey, Marty, you know, I want to put I want to put you and Busta on my, in my you know." So okay, great. This is drummer Marty Simon, who played with Busta in the British band Sharks. Busta said, "I'm not doing anything." I said. Leslie just called me, and we're going to go into Leslie West Bank. Come on up to New York. If you need a refresher, Leslie West was a part of the band Mountain, most famous for their song Mississippi Queen. Busta and Marty were already on Leslie's radar when Sharks opened for Mountain on their U.S. tour. And Busta had been kept in the same loop as Leslie, since both of them had similar management. Plus, the basis for Mountain, Felix Popolardi, had even produced that White Lightning album. At this point in 1976, Mountain had dissolved, and Leslie was looking for his next project. He begins working as a solo artist, with a number of different people backing him. Luckily, Marty and Busta end up being in the right place at the right time, and land in the band alongside a pretty fantastic guitarist. Go down to New York, and Buster's there, me, Leslie West, and a guy named Mick Jones was the, the rhythm guitar player. Uh-huh. Have you ever heard of Mick Jones? Of, like, Clash? There's another Mick Jones that sold a few more records than The Clash. He started a group called Foreigner. That's right, in late 1976, Busta didn't just get the chance to work with one legendary guitar god, he got to work with two. The full lineup was Leslie West and Mick Jones on guitars, with Marty Simon and Busta holding down the rhythm section. Although this overstacked bill didn't last for very long. Mick would eventually leave the lineup to start an incredibly successful career with Foreigner. And as for Leslie West, he ended up cutting back to just a trio for many shows. Leslie's backing band would vary. But there's photographic evidence of Busta playing with Leslie in late 1976, alongside a different touring drummer, Dino Dinelli, who is most famous for playing with the Rascals. Even though Busta didn't play with Leslie West very long, it's important because it marks the first of many future collaborations he and Marty would do after Sharks broke up. The two even worked on a one-off single together called Time Is Right, released in 1977 under the name Mixed Bag. Did the gig? He would say, Marty, what do you got? I said, Come on up. I got a guy here named Michelle Pagliaro. 
It's incredible. Michel Pagliaro, affectionately nicknamed Pag, was a Canadian musician from Quebec who had been playing since about the mid-60s. He sang in both English and French and topped the Canadian charts in both languages. By the mid-70s, Pag was working with a wide range of musicians, and he was going to be a great gateway for Busta to enter the Quebec rock scene. Pag's previous bassist, Leon Fengebaum, had left the group. Marty, who had already been playing with Pag for years at this point, helped Busta score a gig to fill in the space. By early 1977, Pag's backing band would consist of Busta on bass and Marty on drums, plus keyboardist Dwayne Ford, saxophonist Bert Hermiston, guitarist Walter Rossi, and... I traveled all over uh, as a hippie. I hitchhiked all the way up to uh, as far as Alaska, down through California, all around, and basically... Uh, my best friend that I had in my pocket was a harmonica. That's harmonica player Jimmy Zeller, who was a part of this new group of musicians backing Pag. My friend Michel Pagliaro was talking about this new bass player that he's got. You got to meet this guy Buster. And I remember meeting him on like the fifth floor of the, in the next to the studio that we had in old Montreal. And I remember sitting on the on the fire escape and. Uh, we started talking and telling stories and said, yo, Jimmy's out. And we became good friends right away. Party animals, but at the same time, the, the passion of the music, you know, what drove our friendship aside from the humor and the fun, you know, and just the pure energy that we, we shared at the time. In August of 77, Pag wanted a new studio space to record his next few albums with this new band. So he set about converting an apartment space in Montreal. Basically, he had it built with his friends, but it was a, it was a studio on the fifth floor of this, this, uh, this building in old Montreal. But it wasn't really, it wasn't a commercial studio. It was a private thing that Pag put together, but it was old school. It was Pag's personal love. And, uh, and I think Buster used to crash there too, you know. The self-made studio also featured an awesome blow-up picture of Marty bashing the drums. In an article from around that time, Busta said, I've never seen a studio grow from scratch like this. Seven weeks ago, this place looked like a warehouse. By the time we get in here, let me tell you, there's going to be some funky rock and roll. And I mean funky. Busta wasn't lying. The group would start to put together Pagliaro's next record called Rock and Roll, which features this kind of cheeky front cover with Pag sitting in the foreground with a girl around his arm inside what seems to be a booth at a restaurant. The rest of the band you can see through a window, waiting outside the bar in the Canadian cold. The picture of Pag in front was right across the street from the studio. So you'd go up the five escape five floors and the studio was there and we'd go down to the street and we'd, we'd go party in the bar and then we'd go back to the studio. On this new album Busta was working on with Pag was the track Baton Rouge, a song about fighting off metaphorical zombies in the capital of Louisiana. This song rocks and Marty and Busta really dig into it. You put that on that was off the floor one take. I mean I did a perfect imitation of Charlie Watts on that. He found a fantastic bass line. It was a lot of fun. The group would again go on tour backing Pagliaro and also play residencies in and around Montreal. And this network would expand beyond just Pagliaro. During this time, Busta would eventually get one of his greatest opportunities for exposure. Bombers.
Then I got a call from Pagliaro's producer, who was putting together a disco thing called Bombers. That producer was George Lagios, who was a keyboard player that had worked with Pagliaro since the mid-70s. When he was working to put together a studio group to play tracks for a disco record, Busta was called up to bat. The first Bombers album was a copy of some music from Germany, and it was real disco, so like, like Buster would have to sit there and, and count 24 bars. And on the 24 bars, all he played was boom, 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 boom. It would give you the space to dance and get into the groove. The album comes out in 1978 to a lukewarm reception. There wasn't a super defined hit, but the 12-inch single versions of the songs got a fair amount of play in clubs. It did modestly well and definitely warranted a sequel, appropriately titled Bombers 2. While not a complete shift in sound, Bombers 2 was full of originals, unlike its predecessor. Busta and Marty have writing credits for a majority of the songs on the album, with Busta's name on songs like Disco Galaxy, Let's Dance, and Shake. One of the most important songs from Bombers 2 is Everybody Get Dancing, which Busta co-wrote with Marty. This was definitely the breakout hit of the album. record comes out and it's everywhere we were in new york and as we're walking down broadway we're hearing kids with a boom box like our song is coming out of that there was significant play and it was all over the world it was like i heard it in in toulouse france i was touring with another group in 1980 in the south of france i'd walk in and there's nothing better than than you know hearing a big sound system playing your music oh my god this is probably the most commercially successful thing busta has worked on up to this point He's worked with rock legends for about 10 years now, but this is one of the first songs that Busta has a credit on that has sold well commercially. And how could it not? Just listen to that bass line. By this point, Busta had connections through his notoriety as the bassist in Pag's band, and now Bombers had a hit record. It was starting to really drum up some buzz, and he was becoming much more involved in the music scene of the city. 
Busta would do a number of collaborations with other musicians involved with Bombers. First, Busta would play bass on keyboardist Daniel Barb's album Destination on the track La Sphinx. Busta would also play bass on singer Nanette Workman's album Chaud. Nanette is actually American, funny enough, and was raised in Mississippi. She and her brother Billy Workman both ended up in the Quebec music scene in the late 60s after Nanette started collaborating with the French-Canadian producer Tony Roman. It ends up that Nanette records almost exclusively in French, despite not being a native speaker. Apparently, she didn't even understand what she was saying during her first few records. But by 1980, with the release of Chaud, I'm sure she'd overcome the language barrier. With Busta on bass and her brother Billy on guitar, Nanette pursued a real rocky sound with this album. Take a listen to the track Maman Bingo. Although the songs with Danielle and Nanette were fun, and I certainly have a soft spot for them, they would dwarf in comparison to Busta's next big commercial break. In 1979, Busta recorded with Bomber's keyboardist Gino Socio on his album Outline. The album was a pretty decent hit, especially in Canada, reaching 12 on Canada's RPM album charts, but its single dancer went nuclear, spending a solid six weeks at the number one spot on the Billboard disco chart. Dancer is an incredible song, for a lot of different reasons. It shows not only Busta's fantastic bass-playing chops, but moreover, Gino's incredible expertise in the studio. Dancer got put into the DJ sets of one of New York City's most famous discotheques, the Paradise Garage. In a 2013 interview with Wax Poetics magazine, Gino said, They would play that song three times in a row sometimes, and it was already an eight-minute song. It was 24 minutes of Dancer, and people just would not get enough of it. It really was something. It blew me away. Dancer was a big leap forward for Busta too. Like Bombers, this was another big commercial hit he could use as leverage for larger opportunities, and he definitely would. But in order to understand Busta's next big step in his career, we're going to have to go back a bit now to the early 70s to talk about a production company called Unison. Okay, my background. I'm originally from New York, and as you can tell since I still talk through my nose. This is Ron Rifkin, who helped found the Unison production company. And then my father 
became the head of McDonald Tobacco's advertising agency in Montreal. So when I came back from film school, I went up to visit my dad, intending to be in the in the movie business. And he said, we own an industrial film facility. I want you to take it over. I did. Ron had landed himself a pretty great gig in Montreal through his dad. The studio space he's talking about here was used mostly to record things like commercials and radio jingles. We had a facility which had a very small four-track audio studio for doing you know, soundtracks for uh, movies and stuff like that. These projects kept the lights on, but having a studio space in Montreal also meant that they had access to professional recording equipment in an area that had a high demand for local music. Quebec was a big market unto itself, and it was in French in their own language, and they had their own culture and their own music, and still do, obviously. French language music, especially French language Canadian music, has always had a home in Quebec. But in the early 70s, when Unison was starting out, music in French was especially popular in the province. And this was for a number of different reasons. First, starting in the early 70s, the Canadian Radio and Television Commission, or CRTC, began to implement its now infamous quota system that required a certain amount of on-air media to be created by Canadians. In addition to the quotas for Canadian music, there were also more specific quotas for French music. In 1973, the CRTC released new French language quotas that required at least 65% of broadcasts from francophone stations to be in French. Additionally, throughout the 70s, Quebec nationalism was on the rise. The province was experiencing rapid economic growth alongside large social changes. And just as much as they wanted to be seen in their government, they wanted to feel seen on TV and feel heard on the radio. The people demanded Quebecois content. So Unison had found a hole in the market, but the idea still needed work before they could really get the ball rolling. Through his father and working in Montreal, Ron would eventually be introduced to another key player at Unison, a DJ named Steve Grossman. Steve Grossman met my father, and he was my age, and he introduced me to Steve, and we became friends very fast. The fact that I had a production facility, Steve was originally amongst other things, very entrepreneurial, but he was in the entertainment business as well. And he was a jock, a, a radio DJ in Vancouver, who was originally from Montreal and was moving back because he had a child. He was moving back to Montreal. I guess with Steve's connections with the radio stations, being a, a DJ and stuff like that, I know he had connections with a particular station here in Montreal, which call sign was CKVL. This new voice you're hearing is Peter Alves, who was another person working in creative at Unison. He got to start working on commercials in Toronto, but he felt a draw to Montreal. Because of the factors I mentioned earlier, the city itself was exploding creatively during this time, with people flying in from all around the world to record there. So uh, upon arrival in Montreal, um, we discussed our observations with, with Ron and, and Steve uh, to come up with a way to, to, to do French music, but, but not traditional French music, to do R&B. Peter and Steve saw a lot of potential for this little studio that Ron had. Steve, in particular, was very in touch with the market. He was already involved with the Montreal scene, having founded the label Magique with a guy named Yves Ladasseur. And Yves said, I know this guy, George Thurston. And this guy, George, 
He's very creative. He's a terrific writer. He's got a great voice. He's all pumped and ready to go out on stage to sing. Eves had seen George's playing in the backing band of the massively successful Quebec artist Robert Charlebois and saw some potential, but there was still the problem of who was going to play the instruments. He said, we've got to get the real R&B sound. Well, look, 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 at, look at the credits on this, Muscle Shoals uh, Rhythm Section. Look, look at this record, Muscle Shoals Rhythm Section. Well, I'm going to go down and to Muscle Shoals and find out who these people are. So that was Steve's mission. So Steve went on a journey to Alabama and all around the South to different places through different people he knew. And Steve met up with the Muscle Shoals sound guys. Since the goal of the music was to emulate southern U.S. R&B, most of the instrumentation was arranged and played at Muscle Shoals Studio in Alabama. You may have heard they've been known for a tune or two. To help sell the album and give him a little je ne sais quoi, George adopted the stage name, Boul Noir. Literally translated is Black Ball, but it was the name of a candy. There was a candy that was called Boul Noir. And Eve came up with that moniker. For George. Well, with a sweet name like that, what's left to do but release an album? Take a listen to La Balance Que Balance from Bois Noir's first album released in thought so too. The album is a huge hit, especially in Quebec. It was a big hit. It was very successful. And George turned out to be very competent and very talented and all the good things. Absolutely. Absolutely. He was a huge, huge star. Huge star. And and deservedly so. You know, he, he was very good at what he did. His first hit, Into La Vie, is a classic. Unison knew that they had something now, and they were rolling with it. They began to release other albums by local Quebecois studio musicians, sung mostly in French. Although this record was a big break for George, the goal of these records in the eyes of Unison wasn't so much to help out local talent as it was a way for different producers to have an opportunity to create an album and make money. So obviously, the concept was you make the record first, and if the record sells, then you make a group. Then you go out and promote it by doing concerts and doing that kind of stuff. So really the thought from our perspective was the performance and the live performance and being out there with huge audiences and stuff was secondary to the record selling. We were always looking to do um, something fresh, something new. We, we took the chances. Um, they were calculated, but uh, when we felt good about something, we said, hey, let's go, you know. Unison was a company that was willing to take risk, and more importantly, looked for underserved markets. 
Because of that, they made what I think are some of the most interesting and niche albums out there. Probably my favorite release by Unison came out just before Busta became involved with the company. Let's talk about La Fleur. To Jacques Lemaire. Lemaire to La Fleur. In the King's Zone. La Fleur in the slot. Shoot, score! For those of you who don't know, Guy Lafleur was a Quebec sensation back in the 70s. His smooth skating on the ice led his team, the Montreal Canadiens, to win four straight Stanley Cup championships in a row, from 1976 to 1979. So needless to say, he was a big deal not only in Quebec, but in the whole world of hockey. What's next after you've won the Stanley Cup? Make a disco album, of course. Okay, so now you have to remember the timing of all of this. Home video was really just beginning in the United States in the late 70s. At that time, there wasn't such a big installed base because not that many people had video recorders. I mean, compared, obviously, to people who had record players. Mm. So a guy comes into my office and says to me, I have Guy Lafleur under contract, and he wants to do a how-to-play-hockey video. But... Uh, how to play hockey video, that ain't going to sell that many, buddy. He said, well, we need to do something. He came to Unison because we had a reputation for our creative and writing and coming up with concepts. And he said, he said, so what do I do? And I said, let me think about it. So what I thought of was maybe we can take the girls and create disco songs that are donuts or backing. Guy Lafleur talking about how to shoot, check, do the things of hockey. I got my way. Power play. This voice is the musician Alfred Beasley. He played drums on the LaFleur album and was involved with Unison around the same time as Busta. They spent like, man, like, I don't know, a quarter of a million dollars on that thing, you know, because he was like, it would be the equivalent of if um, LeBron James did an instructional rap album of basketball with hip-hop, right? And he, he's giving these instructions on how to play basketball, but he's rapping, so to speak, right? <laughs> Alfred was a part of a lot of different studio records during this time in Montreal, and was a part of the group Watson Beasley. He and Busta were both outsiders to the scene, and in more ways than just being American. So I'm up in Montreal, and Buster's in Montreal, and there's not that many black people in Montreal. Uh, this guy, George Thurston of Bunoir, and he was a black French guy, you know? He was like Michael Jackson, uh, Prince, in Canada, big time, right? Busta gets to work with George Thurston in unison for a number of different reasons. He, of course, was now a name around town as a studio basis, but he had some specific connections. First was Gino Socio, who already knew Busta from Bombers and had recruited Busta to play on a single dancer. Gino was involved with arranging and stuff like that on some of the stuff that we were doing. So we developed a relationship with Gino. I knew Gino very well. Busta Jones was the bassist on Dancer, which was Gino Socio's multi-million seller hit. So if you listen to Dancer, it's a great bass line that he plays. It's, it's like a key to the hook of the song. 
The second reason Busta became involved comes from his connection with Pierre Perpal, who was friends with George Thurston. Busta got the opportunity to play with Pierre after being recommended by a mutual friend, soul boogie singer Goldie Alexander. This recommendation led to Busta playing on the track Pour Moi C'est Toi, which was a single released in 1977. He was like, let me see, Pierre was like the Canadian black Elvis because he could dance really, really well. He had a real huge house. He had a studio in his basement, so we, that's... That's what we recorded his stuff. George had some backup on that Pierre record. Although, funny enough, he's credited as Guy Lafleur as a reference to his love of hockey. He didn't use his real name, likely because Pierre and George were on two different record labels. What they used to do, they used to cut all the tracks, and then they would overnight the uh, music up to Canada, Montreal, right? And so they kind of had that real southern funk to it, kind of like Stax type vibe. Like we talked about earlier, Unison Records had cut a deal to have the rhythm loops for George's tracks to be recorded in Alabama, and then they would be sent up to Canada. But releasing a record is a difficult and often complicated process, especially when your rhythm section is on the other side of a consonant. So when there needed to be some bass parts filled in on a George Thurston record, Busta was called in. I think you can sum up by saying there was enough work with enough different projects that was available for a Busta Jones to come up and work for a while on different things. Busta's first release with Unison would be on George's album, Premiere. Listen to the song, Change Your Sex by Computer. This newfound connection with Unison was incredibly fortunate for Busta. Because of the label's structure and their willingness to take chances in order to explore underdeveloped markets, Busta was able to take on the role of producer much more fully than he had before, and was even able to suggest and lead projects. The first of these that eventually got released was an album called Double. lot of tracks on a couple of groups one called double so we wrote us you know songs like broken glass i live at midnight and they were all like new wavish type songs with a funk bass line and a funk drum pattern Produced by Busta and guitarist Walter Rossi, who Busta had known and worked with since his days with PAG, Double was an album that failed to really make a big splash in the music scene. The most notable thing about the album for our story is that it marked the first release in a series of collaborations between Busta and Talking Heads keyboardist slash guitarist 
Jerry Harrison. Jerry and Busta had a number of connections that drew them towards each other in the music world. First off, there was Gary Kerfurst, who was once the manager for Sharks when Busta was a part of the project and now was the manager for Talking Heads. Many of Gary's clients like the B-52s, Talking Heads, the Ramones, and Blondie usually knew of one another and would even work together on occasion. There were also Busta's connections to Talking Heads producer Brian Eno, from the work he did with Eno's first album, Here Comes the Warm Jets. However the two met, it seems as though Busta was able to propose the double project to Unison, and from this, he was able to work with Jerry. You can hear Jerry Synth playing on the song Playboy. Unison clearly saw something in Busta and allowed him to assume the role of producer again, this time on a project called The Escalators. Recorded around the same time as the double project, the Escalators were an interesting lineup. Listen to Jerry introduce the band. I had gotten to know Busta Jones. He said, I like the way you play guitar. So I was the guitar player in the band. He had this kid, Richie, who he wanted to be the lead singer, who couldn't really sing, but had attitude. And so it was kind of a funk punk band. It was fun, and it was a real challenge to him. The Escalators were, chronologically speaking, the first side project of Talking Heads. Before any of David's solo stuff, and before the smash hit sounds of Tom Tom Club, there was The Escalators. The band only released a four-song EP, and features Jerry on synth and guitar, and Busta on bass. These unison projects with Jerry showcase this sort of genre crossroad in which Busta often worked. Throughout his life, Busta had a pretty eclectic music taste that crossed a lot of racial lines, which is very similar to Jerry and the rest of Talking Heads. But whereas Talking Heads were white kids who found themselves to be exploring music made by people of many different races, Busta was coming from a different direction. He was a black man who had already played with tons of black and white Memphis musicians in a scene that prided itself on its interracial nature. Then, he had moved from the Memphis scene to London and later to Montreal, places that had many more white faces hanging around the club bars, and studios. Busta had found himself in the racial minority, especially in Montreal. But this was where he thrived. Busta worked with other black musicians at Unison, but also other white musicians, and was actively pursuing a sound that blended influences from many contrasting angles. Busta didn't feel as though his race was something that should get in the way of his musical output. And in fact, the more different people he worked with, the bigger and better the opportunities that came his way. Busta is credited as having written all the original songs on the Escalators EP, alongside the singer, Richie Forlenza. I make that note about originals, because the EP does feature a cover of the Sam the Sham and the Pharaoh song. 
Wooly Bully. Buster would also meet another future Talking Heads collaborator during this time, backup singer Dillette McDonald. In the late 70s, Dillette was involved in some of the same disco circles as Busta, touring live with the producer Walter Murphy, who made the song A Fifth of Beethoven. This would be the start of a cherished friendship. In a Rolling Stone interview from 2021, Dillette said that Busta was so wonderful to me, like a brother, and probably my first cheerleader, really. He realized that I had some kind of talent and asked me to sing on a record of his, and I did. Busta would ask Dillette to be on his next project, his one and only self-titled album, released through yet another label, Spring Records. I don't have all the details, but from my understanding, Busta was able to get this deal from his work with Gino Socio. Like I said, that Dancer album was a big hit and opened a lot of doors for Busta. Whether directly through Gino or just through similar disco connections, Busta would get in contact with some of the higher-ups at Spring Records, namely Alan Shevick and Bernard Spigner. They saw potential in an act like Busta and likely offered him a possible record deal. In 1979, Busta would drop the first single from the album, You Keep On Making Me Hot. The song was produced by Gino and has this great little groove. Its B-side is Everybody's Dancing All Over the World, which would also appear on the album. singles were completed independently before the rest of the album. Unlike the other tracks, You Keep On Making Me Hot and Everybody's Dancing All Over the World were both produced by Gino Socio and recorded at Intermedia Sound Studio in Boston. The 7-inch does decently well. I'm sure with Gino's name on it, the songs must have gotten some traction in disco circles, and they're both some of Busta's most well-known solo tracks. The song You Keep On Making Me Hot has even been sampled and remixed a few times through the years. Take a listen to Make Me Hot by Chicago DJ Rahan. The next single would come out in May 1980, a cover of the Stevie Wonder song, Just a Little Misunderstanding. And it's probably my favorite song on the record. Can't let you go. I realize I hurt you so. I love. Surely can't be It's just a little misunderstanding. 
The song is produced by Bobby Eli, who plays guitar on the record. Bobby had a long-standing relationship with Spring Records, having worked with them previously to create a disco hit with Jackie Moore. The song, This Time, Baby. Bobby was a big name over at Sterling Sound Studio in Philadelphia, being a part of the house band there called Mother, Father, Sister, Brother. In fact, fellow MSFB members Leroy M. Bell and Casey James wrote the 7 Inches B-side, Take Me Back Now, which also closes the album. Similar to the Gino Socio situation, Bobby is only credited as producing these two songs on the record, leading me to believe that parts of the songs were likely recorded in either Boston and or Philadelphia, with the final mix being made in Philadelphia, independent from the rest of the album, and again alongside a creator whose Spring Records likely saw as a safe bet. While Busta was working on these songs in Philadelphia, he had the opportunity to do a little more work with Jerry Harrison. The two would team up to produce a single for Future Talking Heads backup singer Nona Hendrix, a cover of the Supreme song, Love is Like an Itching in My Heart. In fact, in a 2023 interview, Jerry even said that both Busta and Nona used the same engineer, the same studio, and even some of the same backing band. Following these four songs, much of the rest of the album would be recorded in New York at both Sigma Sound Studios and Blank Tape Studios. Bob Blank, one of the founders of Blank Tape Studios, would be the main engineer for these sessions. During this time, Busta got in touch with many players from the Parliament Funkadelic universe. Probably the most important of these was keyboardist and fellow future Talking Heads touring member, Bernie Worrell. But there was also drummer Tyrone Lampkin and guitarist Nairobi Sailcat. Musicians weren't the only thing Busta was being introduced to when he went to New York. It was during this time in the late 70s and early 80s that Busta would begin to develop a pretty intense drug habit, one that would grow in intensity as the years went on. Montreal was no squeaky clean metropolis, and I'm sure he was introduced to drugs before he even left Memphis in the 60s. But New York at this point was notorious for its recreational drug culture, especially in the music scene. Busta gained a pretty big reputation for being a partier, and the effects of this will stick with him for the rest of his life. Getting back to the music, there was one more 7-inch single released for the album, The Opener, Impulse Reaction. One review for the track in Record World magazine said that Busta's energized bass leads the way to the dance floor. The song was released with the B-side, Loose Change, and whoof! I really love this album, don't get me wrong, but these are probably the weakest two songs on it in my opinion. Impulse Reaction just takes far too long to really get going to something fun, and Loose Change, 
Well, I already wasn't a huge fan of Busta's singing voice, and let's just say Distortion doesn't really do it for me. Still, it's hard to deny the energy Busta was throwing at this thing, and it's one of the more talked about tracks from the album for its cross-genre sound. One reviewer for the New York Daily News called the song a blend of soul and punk. We've now chatted about every song in the album except two. Superstar, and I put a rush on you. Superstar is another track that focuses on Busta's vocals, so we're not going to talk about that because I've been too mean already. I put a rush on you, on the other hand, kicks ass. level with you guys. This is the song that made me want to make this podcast. I first bought Busta's album because I thought the cover was funny. It features this photo of Busta taken by Richard Wexler, pointing at his own name in the upper left corner with this energy like, you already know who it is. Plus, I had heard that he had gone on tour with Talking Heads, so I had to check him out. But I wasn't ready for this song. Just take a listen to that piano bill. Busta's album was released in late 1980, to decent reviews. The magazine Cashbox even said that it was their crossover pick of the year. There were some live performances in support of the album, with a few of the musicians who had played on it, but there was no tour. Although that might not have solely been because of the album's commercial performance, Busta was about to be very busy. Alongside Jerry, Busta was also working with other people in Talking Heads' orbit in the late 70s. Like I said earlier, Busta played on Talking Heads' producer Brian Eno's first record, Here Come the Warm Jets, and that set him up for future collaborations with other like-minded British rock musicians, like King Crimson guitarist Robert Fripp. In 1980, Fripp released an album called God Save the Queen, slash Under Heavy Manners. A confusing name, right? Well, it's just the kind of weird 80s art thing that a guy like Robert Fripp would make. The album itself is meant to be two separate art pieces, each at home on one album. So if you look at the sticker on the LP, you'll see Side A, God Save the Queen, and Side 1, Under Heavy Manners. Fripp at this time was continuing to develop his trademark sound of Frippertronics. He would hook up two different reel-to-reel tape machines, and using some studio ingenuity thought up by himself and Eno, he was able to create a new sound using tape loops. The result was an atmospheric and almost chillingly cool guitar. While this stuff is great for all the ambient heads out there, it's not exactly the most danceable music. And that's where Busta comes in. Whereas the God Save the Queen side of the album explored a much more atmospheric sound, Fripp pushed the other side to be much more dancier. 
he wanted to go towards what would eventually be called discotronics. Fripp decided to add a driving bass and drum part underneath the tape loops. Buster recorded those parts of the songs alongside his drummer friend, Paul Duskin. The result? Well, just listen to Under Heavy Manners. I know what some of you might be thinking. Hey, that voice sounds familiar. Looking at album credits, the singer for the track is someone by the name Absalm El Habib, which turns out to be a pseudonym for none other than Talking Heads frontman David Byrne. But this wouldn't be the only project Bustin and David both worked on in 1979. Following the Fear of Music tour, Talking Heads was taking a break with David choosing to work on a studio album with Eno called My Life in the Bush of Ghosts. With no original vocals, the album relies on found sounds and sampling, including everything from Lebanese mountain folk singing to talk radio broadcast. Busta would be asked to join in these recording sessions alongside Talking Heads drummer Chris France. Listen to Chris describe the experience in his 2020 memoir, Remain in Love. After the holidays, I got a call from David asking if I would play drums on a basic track for a thing he was doing with Brian Eno. So I went downtown to the studio where I found David, Brian, Robert Fripp, and Busta Cherry Jones. When I asked him why he called himself Busta Cherry Jones, he answered with a grin, Why do you think? We were asked to lay down a long, funky groove. Busta and I dug in deep and did that very well, I think. Fripp, all the while, was playing his Frippertronics with style, finesse, and with perfect posture while sitting on a high stool. The song would eventually be called Regiment on the Burn Eno album My Life in the Bush of Ghosts. Plus, to top off all of this, Busta had also begun to work with Eno and Talking Heads' bassist, Tina Weymouth. He was giving Tina slap bass lessons. That's how they met. This new voice you're hearing is touring sound man for Talking Heads, Frank Gallagher, who had been working with the band since their infamous European tour with the Ramones. He had actually already been working in parallel to Busta with the guitarist Walter Rossi, both of whom are Scottish. Well, we call ourselves the Scotia Nostra. We'll make you an offer you can't understand. Like Frank said, Busta was giving bass lessons to Tino, which Busta described as performing different exercises suggested by Eno. These seem to have happened sometime around or before the recording of Remain in Light in early 1980. Following the recording of Talking Heads' third album, Fear of Music, the band decided that they were going to focus more on multi-layered instrumentals, similar to the sounds of the song E. Zimbra.
their 1980 studio album, Remain in Light, which was produced by Eno alongside the other Talking Heads members, pushed the band to explore a more experimental approach to studio recording. The album was in part inspired by African music, especially high-life music from West Africa, and artists like Fela Kuti. The band experimented with long jamming sessions of repeated tape loops, constantly overdubbing old versions of songs. The result was something only Talking Heads could have made. And you may find yourself living in a shotgun shack, and you may find yourself in another part of the world, and you may find yourself behind the wheel of a large automobile, and you may find yourself in a beautiful house. There was just one problem. How was the band going to tour this thing? Up to this point, it had just been the four talking heads on stage. David on vocals and guitar, Jerry on synth and guitar, Chris on drums, and the legendary Tina on bass. But the sound from Remain in Light demanded something larger, more aggressive and chaotic. It demanded a larger band. Up first would be adding a second guitarist, which was easy. Former Frank Zappa and David Bowie guitarist Adrian Ballou had supplied a lot of the solos that ended up on Remain in Light. Here he is doing his trademark, how the hell did he even make the guitar sound like that sound at the end of The Great Curve. When we recorded Remain in Light, we realized that we really couldn't play all of the parts at the same time. We had done such a lot of layering, and we had the opportunity to play Central Park and the Heatwave Festival in Mossport outside of Toronto. And we were being paid more money because we were bigger gigs, and so we said, well, let's, let's see if we could try and find a way to play this. And I remember sitting down, we were still mixing the, the uh, Remain in Light, and David and I said, well, oh, we need background singers percussion, we need another keyboard player, we need another guitar player, oh my god, he's on this, that's where we maybe need another bass player. And I had been hanging in New York with a guy named Buster Jones. That was Jerry Harrison talking there, and he was right. Talking Heads was going to need to double everything on that stage, which included the bass. Oh look, who's that? A bassist all the members of the band had already worked with? Count them in. And just like that, Buster was added to the band, doubling Tina on the bass. I do want to take a second here to underline something about Busta joining Talking Heads. While I'm impressed with the musical output that two basses are able to add to the sound of the band, it's undeniable that unlike adding other instruments like guitar and keyboards, two basses is a bit unconventional. And so the idea of adding one can feel more like it's taking the bass parts of one player and splitting them in two, leaving both players with a smaller role within the rhythm section and frankly, less to do on stage. While I'm not trying to imply the direct intention of putting Busta in the band was to decrease Tina's role within the group, I do doubt Tina was ever really asked how she felt before the addition happened. In fact, she has flat out said that it wasn't her idea to ask Busta to join. Chris has also expressed his disagreement with adding Busta to the band. It was not my idea to invite Busta on the tour as the second bass player. I had a good deal of respect for Buster, but this was clearly an attempt to marginalize Tina. Did we really need two bass players? Buster was playing parts that Tina had already written and recorded, and I felt it was a dumb, unnecessary move to merely duplicate all of her bass parts. Tina held her own, though, and remained exemplary. It was very hard to be a woman in rock music at the time. 
And I think that this was maybe one of the reasons why Tina was discounted by other men in the room, who may have unintentionally, or possibly intentionally, overlooked her. We'll discuss in more detail how Bust and Tina tackled the problem of not having enough to do on stage during the performances later in this episode. But first, let's talk about who filled out the rest of the slots. Busta would pull his weight with his connections, asking singer Gillette McDonald and keyboardist Bernie Worrell to join, even though neither performer had ever heard any of Talking Heads' music before. But remember, both of these guys had just played on Busta's solo album, so I'm sure they were familiar with Busta and, moreover, were open to trying something like this. Dillette would double David's vocal parts, occasionally joined by Nona Hendricks, and Bernie would double Jerry's keyboard parts. Finally, to round everything off was an auxiliary percussionist to double up Chris's drumming, Steve Scales, who Bernie had known from the New York scene. Busta gave him a call, but it didn't go exactly as planned. I'll let Chris tell this story. When Busta called percussionist Steve Scales, he left a message with Steve's mom, who took two weeks to give the message to Steve. She was frightened by the gruff sound of Busta's voice. She thought he might be a gangster and a bad influence on Steve. Steve and his mom lived in Red Hook, Brooklyn, where you couldn't be too careful. When we met Steve, he had just finished a tour with R&B greats Ashford and Simpson. Steve had never heard of Talking Heads either, but he came to meet me at Sigma Sound one day. I gave him a cassette of some of our set to listen to. When he heard our version of Take Me to the River, he told me, he said to himself, these white people just want to get down and play some funk. Steve was in. With him on board, Talking Heads just went from a small quartet to our gargantuan nine-piece band. What's really important to note is that none of the black musicians besides Busta and Nona had ever heard of Talking Heads before. But after hearing the band's music, all of them gave it a shot. Before the tour started, the nine-piece band met up in New York to rehearse. While we had always held rehearsals in our loft, the bigger band would need even more space. So we moved our rehearsals down the street to Pink Floyd's Britannia Row rehearsal space in Long Island City. So when the big band started, I got a call from the office saying, tomorrow morning, 10 a.m., Brit Row. This is Talking Heads sound man Frank Gallagher again. I show up at 10 a.m. not knowing what was going on. I walk into Bernie Worrell, Adrian Ballou, Donna Hendricks, Buster Jones, Steve Scales, and a pile of gear. No stage plot. There was no nothing. Who stands where? So at that point, I had two guys that worked with the B-52s and Iggy, respectively. The three of us just moved gear around, stuck a few mics up, and within the hour, they were playing. This new lineup of Talking Heads was going to be radically different. And you might think that the many musicians coming from many different backgrounds might have had a hard time playing together. But apparently, that really wasn't the case. To have that much talent in the room, you know, and there was a couple of gear issues. We, we had to, obviously, it was the first time people were getting gear up, a few technicals. But musically, it was like, if at that level, when those guys came in, Steve Scales came in and, and Bernie, they just locked in. We just jammed. They basically just jammed. They had, there was a song structure, and, and they followed it. And then they embellished it with their own little things. With a few rehearsals under their belt, the new expanded lineup of Talking Heads was ready to take it to the stage at their first gig, Heatwave Festival in August of 1980. It was a bit of a busy day, to say the least. It was extremely hot and humid. 
and we were in a hotel and there was there was a helicopter landing pad there and at that point the traffic was so bad they were taking us in by chopper after waiting around the hotel all morning we were flown by helicopter to the festival the crowd was enormous we found out later that upward of 85,000 people were in attendance we fly in it was like mash going in we fly in and I, I can't remember who was on the on the chopper with us in that particular one. But I think one of the I think Cindy from the B fifty twos might have been on that as well. And because we were all family then, they were all managed by Gary Kerfler. And so we 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 get into heat wave. The B fifty twos finished a blazing set and it was time for us to do our thing. The crew made the changeover on stage. I'll never forget that Frank Gallagher replaced Tina's broken keyboard stand with an ironing board when no other was to be found. Now, I don't know if you're familiar with festivals. They just roll you on. There's no sound check. You get a maybe a five, ten minute thing on your headphones where you can just check that stuff is there. And then the band come on. Gary had planned it so that Talking Heads would hit the stage right at sunset, and then the stage lights would all come on during our show. It was good timing. And Talking Heads, I don't know how the fuck I did it, but apparently it was really good. It was better than really good. It was explosive. Additionally, the Heatwave Music Festival also marked the live debut of the song Ezimbra, and this is directly tied to Busta and the other touring musicians. Up to this point, Ezimbra was the only single released from a Talking Heads album that the band had never played live. The band themselves are notorious for not changing their set list throughout their tours, especially when they started doing their expanded lineup. So there was a clear understanding about the logistics of constructing a live show. The reason Talking Heads didn't play Ezimbra on their 1979 tour was the same reason they needed to expand the band following Remain in Light. They couldn't replicate that huge studio sound live with just the four core members. They needed some help. So when Talking Heads was finally expanded, they were ready to take on Ezimbra. For the Heatwave Festival, the idea for the show was sort of similar to the way the band builds up during Stop Making Sense. Talking Heads first played Psycho Killer with five people on stage, the four core members plus Adrian Ballou. Ballou. Then, song by song, they begin to add more musicians. Delight McDonald, McDonald. Steve Scales, Scales. and Bernie Worrell Worrell. all eventually came on. Following the fourth song of the set, Cities, Busta finally walks on stage. Then it's finally time. Ease and breath. The expanded lineup would do one additional gig in August at the Woolman Rink in Central Park as the last part of the test run of the big band shows. The next show was a few days later in Central Park. It was a hot, sticky afternoon in August. Our good friends, the band from Tokyo called Plastics, opened the sold-out show at Woolman Skating Rink. We loved the Plastics. Baloo said to me, and I don't take notes, but Baloo said to me, Frank, just make sure that everything I play today sails out over Central Park. And I went, fucking good idea.
take a break in September of 1980, as the rest of the tour was planned. In October, Busta would be back on a tour with Talking Heads that would start in the US, go on to Europe, and then finish in Japan. Towards the start of this tour, Busta would be featured in a write-up in Cashbox magazine, where he reflected on how he was contributing as a touring member. You see, I've always been crazy about dance music. When I was in England, I incorporated dance rhythms into the heavy metal sound of Sharks. When disco blossomed, I really got into it because it got people grooving again. And now those same rhythms are fusing in the music of Talking Heads. That's why I feel so at home with the heads. To further focus on how musicians like Busta influence the sound of Talking Heads specifically, let's go through the life of Take Me to the River as a live Talking Heads cover song. First, let's start by hearing the original as a 1974 cut from the Al Green album, Al Green Explores Your Mind. Notice the tempo of the song. It's a party tune, definitely. One that's trying to get you up to dance. It's not really racing through by any means, but still, there's a pretty definite motion coming from the bass and the drums. So now, let's take a listen to this recording from January 1977, which was one of the earliest instances of Talking Heads playing the song live. that speed, that tension. The band has really only existed for a few years at this point, and Jerry wasn't even an official member of the group, although he does sit in on this recording. The band is not yet tight, and while they love the Al Green tune, you can tell they themselves are not black musicians from Memphis. They're more like a bunch of nervous white kids who love their soul records. Now let's take a listen to Take Me to the River as a studio recording from the 1978 album, More Songs About Buildings and Food. the band relax a little more here. The four aren't rushing through anything, and are more than that, trying to go as slow as possible. During rehearsals, Brian Eno suggested that Talking Heads try playing our cover of Al Green and Teeny Hodges' Take Me to the River as slowly as we possibly could without losing the groove. The slowed down version was far sexier and had an almost underwater quality that we all loved. The recording became a hit and for a long time, it would be the biggest song in Talking Heads' discography. It would reach number 26 on the Billboard Hot 100, only to be surpassed by Burning Down the House five years later when it reached number 9 in 1983. With the cover now being one of the band's biggest hits, it's no surprise that the band dropped the tempo down and really started to lay into those grooves in their live shows to better emulate the sounds of the recording. Take a listen to this version from late 1978 of the band playing the song during the supporting tour for more songs. Yeah. 
The live version of the song would remain largely the same through the following tour that supported the album Fear of Music. But then things would start to change with the expanded lineup. Let's again take a listen to the band playing at the Woolman Ice Rink in New York City, August 1980, the second show to feature the big band. <laughs> Wow, that's starting to sound different. The bass certainly is. Whereas Tina was playing the song much more rigid and to the beat, Buster really leans into the more funky aspects of the sound, delivering a bass line that has some real stank on it. There's just so much more juice behind that bass playing. And so having two bass players, I had to separate them uh, sonically. I had to... Buster was one sound. He was, he was guttural and slappy and down there down and and whereas tina had a little more definition and sharpness to her sound i don't know why people don't do it if i ever get involved with a band again i'm gonna say two bass players by the time the band was on the second leg of the remain and light tour in europe the two bases had really started to get in sync for some of the bigger, bassier songs, Busta and Tina would both play bass at the same time, with Busta playing the lower octave and Tina playing the upper octave. They would do this for songs like Cross-Eyed and Painless, The Great Curve, and of course, Take Me to the River. To complete the song's journey, let's listen to Take Me to the River from Stop Making Sense in 1984. This was one of the last live performances Talking Heads ever did, period. Busta at this point is no longer with them and hasn't been for years, but that doesn't mean his influence isn't still felt. Just listen to that opening bass line. almost dripping wet. It's so lush. Talking Heads clearly learned a lot from the 1980-81 tour, and not just from Busta. Tina's bass could still sound playful and frantic if she wanted it to, but with a song like Take Me to the River, she understands how to take it down and get groovy with it. One of the songs where Talking Heads really demonstrates the sonic capabilities of two bassists is the song Born Under Punches, The Heat Goes On. Like Frank said earlier, Busta had a much more slappy approach to his bass sound than Tina. Starting from his work within the Canadian disco scene and continuing through his time with Talking Heads, Busta leaned into this technique more, especially mixing it with new wave sounds. During a song like Born Under Punches, you can really hear when Busta is playing and when Tina is playing. There are two distinct and complementary bass lines, not to mention one of my favorite slap solos from Busta.
let's get back to Busta and his relationship with the band. The tour would eventually come to a close in February 1981 with a performance at the Nippon Shinokin Hotel in Tokyo. You can actually hear this performance as part of the Tokyo Final Night bootleg. Busta was the second bassist in a band with Tina Weymouth. No matter how good Busta was, he was never going to replace Tina. She was a founding member of the band, not to mention married to the drummer. She wasn't going anywhere. Even despite tensions within the band at this time, there is no talking heads without Tina. Still, Busta's involvement in the band had a direct impact on Tina's future musical career. Besides the stuff I mentioned earlier, practically, Tina just had more time on stage to do other things. Not every song needed two basses, so oftentimes Busta and Tina would play something else, like guitar, keyboards, or percussion. This allowed Tina much more room to experiment with her sound. It gave her some more confidence in her singing voice, as well as musical skills. That turned out to be sort of like two queens in one palace, but I love Busta. He, he, um, it gave me an opportunity to be able to sing backgrounds and play keyboard parts, which made it super fun for me. And it was so supportive, because Bernie Well uh, and came up to me at the end of that tour and said, uh, Tina, you know, you should, you should be writing more stuff. I'd like to hear you doing more of your own thing because you've got really good ideas. Keyboardist Bernie Worrell, alongside many other people, had taken note of Tina's newfound skills and confidence and were encouraging her to pursue a project where she could be the front woman. This, alongside a number of other happy coincidences, led to Tina and Chris forming Tom Tom Club releasing what at that point was the most commercially successful single by anyone in the band, Genius of Love. As for Busta, well, he didn't get the short end of the stick. With the band going on another hiatus, Talking Heads record company Sire needed something to be put out, and a live album was just the trick. That's how Busta cemented himself in the story of Talking Heads, appearing on the cover of the live album, The Name of This Band is Talking Heads, alongside the rest of the expanded lineup. To be quite honest, if Busta wasn't on that album, there's a good chance that this podcast wouldn't even exist. Still, just because Busta's out of Talking Heads doesn't mean we're going to stop talking about his career. Busta would continue to perform for the rest of his life, and in fact, he didn't have much turnaround time between this and his next project. Again, Busta would get a gig offer from a former bandmate from Sharks, this time from guitarist Chris Spedding. But that's all for next time! Slippery People Pod was made by me, Calvin Crunkleton, but you can call me Slippery Dude. The voices you heard in this podcast besides mine were the legendary Marty Simon, Jimmy Zeller, Ron Rifkin, Peter Alvids, Alfred Beasley, and Frank Gallagher. An interview clip of Jerry Harrison in this episode came from the podcast This Must Be Talking Heads, created by Rodney Gordon, which you should totes check out. Other interview clips from this episode came from the Q&A following a screening of Stop Making Sense in Los Angeles in 2023, and another conversation done by Chris and Tina for Red Bull Music Japan. Special thanks for this episode includes DM, MT, NS, P, 
DS and KF. Slippery People Podcast features music from the band TMM, specifically the songs Pop Tart Fire and Wooden Funk. You can find them on all your favorite platforms. If you'd like to learn more about Busta or this podcast, feel free to visit me at slipperypeoplepod.com. There you can find playlists of music used in the episode, an episode transcript, and a full list of sources. If you know more information about Busta and would like to send it my way, or just feel like reaching out, please send me an email at slipperypeoplepod at gmail.com. That's S-L-I-P-P-E-R-Y-P-E-O-P-L-E-P-O-D at gmail.com. Thanks.